The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Today, I want to continue with sort of a series we started a few weeks ago of looking at particular personalities and political figures uh, involved very deeply with the uh, governmental structure at the state or the federal level. And today, I'd like to uh, talk about uh, Attorney General William Barr. He was a very controversial figure for some, but a savior for others in their view that um, President Trump needed to have somebody that was honest, uh, had a uh, reputation of uh, impeccable integrity, and needed to stabilize this country from the attorney general's uh, standpoint. Now, William Barr has written a book that uh, is very good, and uh, I I recommend uh, anybody who wants to understand this man and the time he was uh, working with presidents. He's worked with two presidents, But the book is called One Damn Thing After Another because he was involved in the turmoil of the uh, Trump administration. And he has mixed views. He is very proud of the work that he did and that the Trump administration did. He's very supportive of the Trump policies that were put in place. But I think he has a great insight to the uh, personality flaws, if you will, of President Trump that kind of created his own downfall. And he says that even if the Democrats were to nominate somebody, even though he has these significant reservations about uh, Trump's personality, that the policies kind of override all that, that if a Democrat was nominated and Trump was, uh, was nominated by the Republicans, that he would still vote for Trump knowing all that he does and all the problems and issues So Attorney General Barr originally worked for George H.W. Bush back in 1991-1993 as Attorney General, and after many years then of being out of that sort of uh, Washington uh, role, uh, he became Attorney General in 2019-2020 for President Trump. So given all the reservations uh, you have, Attorney General, about uh, President Trump, but also as a supporter of his policies and you're willing to vote for him again, which drives a lot of people crazy because they like some of your negative comments about him, but then they don't quite understand why you would vote for him again. But uh, we want to get into that as we have this discussion today. Tell me why, first of all, that you came back after many years of being out of that Washington um, governmental job of attorney general or other positions in Washington. Why did you come back to serve under President Trump? Well, I thought uh, the country was headed toward a constitutional crisis. I I was skeptical about the Russiagate narrative, and I thought it was being used to cripple his administration and drive him from office. Uh, Or at least I was concerned about that. And uh, the more I learned about it, the more I became concerned about it. No one, uh, the institutional lawyers, the establishment lawyers were not coming to the aid of the president. He was not being given his due as president. And uh, in this respect, I think he was more sinned against than sinner. They created a feeding frenzy around his administration. And 
uh, when Sessions left, they needed an attorney general who could stabilize the situation and provide leadership at the department. And uh, I tried to throw up other names and push some other candidates, but at the end of the day, he continued to say he wanted to talk to me about it. And I wouldn't go in to talk to him unless I had already made up my own mind that I would take it. Well, Attorney General, um, I'm sort of a political junkie, and I think many people listening to this radio program slash podcast um, may also have a lot of insight uh, to politics or interest in politics. And your perspective, you were there in the, the White House. You were there involved in the political process even before you became attorney general under Trump. You're very influential. You've got a lot of credibility. Tell us about that period before we get into your time in with Trump and some of the inside politics that you can describe to us. And give us some insight, because we're hearing all sorts of crazy things, of course, from this uh, January 6th committee. So I wanted to have you on today and talk about what Trump was really like and what it was like in Washington during that period of time. But in 2016, I know you were never a never Trumper, but you seem to be a never Hillary Clinton person. So tell us about the 2016 election and what your perspective was on the race between uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton? Well, I was never a never-Trumper. Uh, I thought 2016 was a critical time, and I supported other people for the nomination, starting with Jeb Bush, who I had become friends with when I served under his father. Uh, but, uh, and, and the last, my last choice was, was Trump, and I saw Trump's faults, and uh, he had his share, but I also felt that he was elections are a choice between two candidates and I thought he was superior to Hillary Clinton so I thought all you know I could never understand never trumpers I mean just on the basis of the Supreme Court appointments and the judiciary it was important that uh, he win the presidency you know Attorney General Barr it's a great time to have your book come out and this information and insight that you have because we've got this crazy January 6th um, you know, kangaroo court going on in Washington, talking about the horrors of Donald Trump. Yet your book gives an even, I think, both sides of the issue. The policies were great. He was morally superior uh, to Hillary Clinton. The importance of the Supreme Court and the judiciary, as you just mentioned. It's so important that people recognize the balance, the the greatness of Donald Trump, as well as the flaws in the man. And quite honestly, I think many people in the voting population, general population, believe that. Now, there are some people who, as he once said, he could shoot somebody in the middle of Times Square and nobody would prosecute him. But it was a critical time, as you mentioned. And the Russiagate stuff was just hampering this administration and all the good policy was he's, he was implementing, all the good things he was doing, eliminating regulation, changing the tax code, putting in um, judicial uh, nominations that would really help move this towards equal justice. He was building the wall. He was improving the economics, uh, low unemployment, all those things that his uh, supporters point to. But the thing that was hampering him was this Russiagate, which the media was just feeding on. It was a frenzy. But you as an outsider looking at this were suspicious. Tell us how or why you were so suspicious of this Watergate drag on the administration? 
because it never made you know i had started off in the cia and and it never made sense to me that the Russians would have had to collude or wanted to collude with someone to engage in a, what, what is called a hack-and-dump operation, hack into some emails and then make them public. It's a pretty simple thing, just to embarrass them. They don't need to collude with anyone to do that. It's their stock and trade. And so it just never made any sense that they would, and the stuff that was being thrown out just didn't add up to me. Um, and uh, the more I saw, the more it just... Uh, uh, appeared to be a phony scandal. Well, Attorney General, just as outsider layman looking at all this, it's very clear that this whole Russiagate thing, uh, even at the time, it was a false narrative. It made no sense. And then you had the FBI, we later find out, you know, was using this false narrative and making changes that made people look like they were saying the opposite of what they were actually saying in emails. They used it information, false information to FISA court, which is supposed to be this special area that protects us from the kind of uh, FBI investigations without a normal hearing in a court and due process and all that. Um, I guess the question is, how could this have happened in the United States of America? And I know you appointed a special prosecutor, uh, Durham, Uh, Maybe you could tell our audience about Durham and what you sort of see developing out of that that might say, well, how how in the world could this have happened? Durham is the special counsel that I appointed to look into how this got going, how this whole Russiagate narrative got going and why and why people did what they did, especially the FBI. And uh, he's going to have to make a determination. Was this... uh, overzealousness and then did they, did they have good motives or was this an example of uh, abuse going after the president for political motives essentially or institutional motives <clears throat> that's what he's supposed to determine but when I look at all the facts I, as I've said all along it's inexplicable to me how this got going especially after the election I mean I, I, I'm troubled by what happened before the election Right. But after the election, when the dossier started falling apart, when they found out that the only source for it, this so-called principal subsource, had been under investigation for being a Russian agent, uh, and, and that he was saying that the stuff that was reported by Steele was not facts, but really just sort of their speculation, uh, they still went ahead pushing on the administration, going after Flynn, and so forth. Uh, but proving criminal intent in these kinds of cases is, some, is sometimes very difficult. Well, Attorney General, we're now two years or so after the original appointment, and we're now seeing some indictments. We're seeing some trials. I, I assume that the uh, Durham investigation and future indictments and wherever that leads is going to continue on for some period of time. But doesn't this whole thing kind of smell to you? And why isn't Durham doing more? Well, it smells bad, but uh, but I'm not going to state what I think. That's for for, uh, Durham to figure out. Well, Attorney General, I mean, this stuff has really been outrageous. Not only what, like, uh, James Comey did as head of the FBI, others in the FBI doing outrageous things. Um, don't you have a personal opinion about this? And, and can't you state more clearly um, how um, 
uh, inappropriate and probably illegal all this activity against Trump was. I mean, we're piling on him now with this January 6th committee. Somebody needs to say, hey, enough is enough, that this was wrong from the beginning, and um, let's just don't keep uh, beating a dead horse. What's your opinion here? Well, you're, you're trying to get me to <laughs> come to the, the bottom line conclusion, but I it, I really don't feel I can do that. Uh, you know, I, I launched the investigation, and, and I was the attorney general. It was taking place under me. I think the behavior was outrageous, outrageous behavior uh, by Comey and the, uh, some other higher-ups at the FBI. But whether it was criminal remains to be uh, determined. Well, Attorney General, I guess we all have heard those comments in the past that uh, the wheels of justice turn slowly, but it sure seems like the wheels of corruption turn very fast. So your book, um, One Damn Thing After Another, is a fascinating insight to this period of time. And I want to continue and get into uh, the actual Trump administration, the inside politics in some ways, as to what was happening in the White House during your time in there. So, audience, if you'll just stay with us, I think you will enjoy the rest of this conversation with uh, Attorney General uh, William Barr. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we are talking to former Attorney General William Barr. You know, in the current news, if you're listening to anything at all in the media or watching TV, we've got this January 6th committee who's just beating up one-sided attacks against uh, President Trump. Um, the Republicans on the committee really are the rhino-type Republicans with uh, Lynn, Liz uh, Cheney, and um, it's nobody's really asking the tough questions that might be appropriate in some cross-examination. So I wanted to have this program today for our audience to listen a little bit uh, to Bill Barr, who's a little bit more even-handed in his uh, critique and analysis of President Trump, talking about the great policies he has, Yes, he did some uh, personal things that Barr would disagree with. He was a difficult kind of a personality. But the strengths of the policies that Trump implemented um, would indicate that Barr said that he would vote for Trump again if that was the only choice between Trump and some crazy Democrat out there that's trying to follow this progressive policy. So he points out all the good things as well and gives a pretty good even-handed view of the issues and complications in his book, One Damn Thing After Another. So I want to go back to um, Attorney General Barr and say, with all the stuff that we just talked about in the last segment, all the corruption that was going on, all the 
the FBI involvement and making up stuff and the whole Russiagate issue. Um, I know you can't uh, say because the ongoing investigation, you can't give your own opinion and sort of prejudge because I think you're a man of integrity and you know how the process works. This, this slow grind of, of justice is happening. But aren't you kind of outraged and angered about all of this? Isn't it absolutely amazing that this uh, actually happened in the United States of America? To me, it is stunning. And, and I understand people's uh, being upset uh, by the behavior of the FBI. And one of the questions I get most frequently out around the country is, what happened to the FBI and how can we turn it around? Let's continue with this craziness that was going on during that period of time. You said, um, you know, one damn thing after another was happening. But um, uh, Mueller was appointed then special prosecutor to look into all of this Russiagate and how it got started and what was going on. Was there any collusion? And it took him forever to do this. And for people listening in in the audience, they may forget, but there were two parts of the Mueller report. The first was around collusion with the Russians, and he found nothing there, and he came to that conclusion. It took him two years, and the FBI knew it was, the, it was all fake uh, when he started the special prosecution investigation, but it took him two years to be able to come to that final conclusion himself and then to publish it. But there was a second part where he raised questions about whether or not Trump was obstructing justice where Trump was, I'm sure, outraged, knowing it was false, and he was saying, I'm not going to participate in this crazy investigation because it's all made up, it's all fantasy, and I've got other things to do with my administration than to play this game. So tell us about what your perspective was during this time and what your thoughts were on the Mueller report and this whole idea that he left open this question as to whether or not there was obstruction. What did that do to the country, and what does that do to the presumption of innocence when he throws that out there uh, just for red meat for the people who were so anti-Trump at the time? Well, the whole second volume dealing with so-called obstruction, he flipped the burden of proof uh, to the president to prove he was innocent versus the government to prove there was a crime. So it's not his purpose to exonerate, you know, to find evidence that he can say, I've exonerated. Bob is to say, is there evidence sufficient to bring a, a criminal charge against him? Well, you've used the term outrageous before to describe what was going, going on in the FBI and Comey and all the other craziness that was happening in there at the FBI is was the Mueller's report and the way he handled that obstruction of justice and the rest of the report, the length of time that he took and how he conducted his whole investigation, was it outrageous as well? I believe uh, Mueller's stewardship of the investigation was outrageous. I think he, there were a number of things that I thought were inexcusable when he went out and hired a lot of partisan Democrats, headhunters, basically, uh, who, uh, which completely undercut the whole purpose of his appointment, which was to reassure, reassure the public this was going to be above politics. And he went and he, and he and he made half the country think this thing was a political witch hunt. Um, and then his whole, you know, I think, by the time he came in in May, uh, 
of 2017, people pretty much knew there was no collusion. I don't think very much more had to be do, done to, to, to nail that down. And yet, he started going down this path of obstruction, and the things he used to start that were things which he later essentially had to admit were not could not be obstruction, which is firing Comey. And this comment he made to Comey, it, you know, I, I hope you can see your way, way clear to Flynn off. Right. Uh, and those were neither, neither of those could be obstruction, but that was the basis he used to start and protract the investigation. He did a great disservice to the country. I think he knew very quickly there was no collusion, and I think he stretched the thing out for two years, essentially bootstrapping up, you know, new claims of obstruction. The president's sitting there. He knows this thing is is bogus from day one. He knows there was no collusion. And yet they're dragging the thing out with all this, these silly obstruction, uh, you know, esoteric legal theories as to how they could catch the president on obstruction. Made the president much more mad. And, you know, he maybe do, does stupid things, but they're not obstruction of justice. So the whole thing was, was a disservice to the country. Well, Attorney General, I know President Trump is such a strong person that it's hard to see him um, feeling like he, um, you know, he's a victim. He doesn't take that personality uh, characterization at all. Uh, he's able to just, you know, take the, the licking and keep on ticking kind of a thing. But, you know, all this that was going on with Mueller uh, is pretty much a witch hunt, wasn't it? I mean, the president was kind of right on target, and only now we're really seeing the full picture here. What's your assessment? Well, as I said, the president isn't far from wrong when he calls called this a witch hunt. It, it's very much like a witch hunt what happened. They were out to get the president. FBI agents who were working on it <clears throat> have said that it was the exact opposite of what a bona fide investigation would do. They made up their mind there was a crime they were going to prove, and then they were scrounging around to find something to, to prove that crime. I think it was very wrong what happened, and part of it may have been that Mueller was not hands-on and was not paying adequate attention to what was going on. Well, Attorney General, I mean, I know your legal background and the position you're in, and maybe you can't say everything you'd like to say because of the ongoing Durham report and just the nature of, of who you are, but... My goodness, um, you know, I, you're cutting a lot of slack to uh, Mueller, who, um, you know, came in as this hero, this guy who, you know, could save the world and do this bipartisan investigation, which it obviously wasn't. He uh, he drew conclusions, dragged this thing out for two years. So, I mean, you know, come on, let's get real about the uh, damage that was done to this country by this by this man and his his uh, state of mind or his inability, but let's don't be so generous uh, to him. Uh, is that is that not a fair um, uh, statement from somebody who's not in your position and doesn't have to um, be as polite? Um, I can state what I really think, and I think this was a, a damaging period of time that uh, inhibited the Trump administration uh, for almost two years. But the but I'll, I'll say this. The damage, a lot of damage was done to this country by the pendency of this nonsense for two for two years. Uh, we couldn't engage in normal diplomatic relations with Russia and so forth. So we couldn't engage with Russia, which Trump was saying we need to have at least an ongoing discussion and understanding of each other. Does that some of that have an impact 
on what's happening uh, with Russia and Ukraine today? Some of what we're seeing today perhaps is the consequence of not being able to them and try to work out diplomatic solutions to their concerns and our concerns. And instead, we weren't able to do that throughout the first term. And then when Biden came in, it was irresistible for Putin to grab what he could. But uh, there was a big cost to the country for this nonsense. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, that Mueller has to take some responsibility for that. Well, Attorney General, your book is called One Damn Thing After Another. So let's take one more damn thing. And that comes up during administration, your time and involvement with it. And that's... Um, the first impeachment that was sparked by this idea of a phone call from President Trump to Ukrainian President at the time, uh, Zelensky, that we now know a lot more about him than we did back then. But, you know, this was something that was, again, just kind of conjured up out of nothing because there was a Democratic control of the House that could just with a majority vote, and they had a majority, and they hated Trump for whatever ideological reasons they had, and they decided they're going to impeach him again, which creates a whole trial in the Senate. So what's your thinking about this crazy uh, initiative that started with a phone call to President Zelensky, and how does that normally work if we have the President of the United States talking to the head of another country? Why was that an impeachable offense? Uh, the, the theory here was that when uh, a country like Ukraine does something that's politically beneficial to a president, that that should be viewed as a campaign contribution, okay? And what I try to point out is the whole nature of depl- – it's a very slippery slope to go down that. It hasn't been done in the past, and the implications are, are pretty mortifying because – Diplomacy, by its nature, is quid pro quo. Right. You do this for me and I'll do this for you. Frequently, presidents are seeking to accomplish and get a deal with a foreign country that is politically beneficial to them. Right. That will help them, like return the hostages. Can I get these hostages back before the election and so forth? Uh, and so uh, to, to say that, that, is, that diplomacy... Uh, quid pro quos uh, are a crime in the solicitation of a political contribution would essentially get the criminal justice process right in the thick of diplomacy, and it's crazy. General, your book, One Damn Thing After Another, gives a terrific insight to the presidency of Donald Trump, and you've given it um, uh, credence on both sides of the the, the fantastic successes that were going on, as well as the problems that were in some ways self-created and self-generated. So give me a summary sort of of what you think the overall perspective that you bring uh, through this book about the Trump presidency. <clears throat> you know, I give him a lot of credit in that book. This is not an anti-Trump screed. I supported him, and I think he played an important role in history of blocking the, you know, the the march through the institutions that the the progressives had been conducting, and 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 stopping it. Well, I think you just hit on the most important part as to why the anger and the hatred for Donald Trump existed to such an extent that it had in the media and in the Democratic Party because he was stopping that progressive march through our institutions that you talked about, and he was doing it successfully. And we now see the reversal of that, where the Biden administration is putting all these people back in 
and bringing progressivism, Marxism, socialism to our country, and Trump was instrumental in trying to stop that. So let's take a quick commercial break because I want to come back and I want to focus on that issue about the Trump administration. Uh, we'll be right back at this commercial. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. When it comes to car magazines, are you tired of reading about mega-dollar collector cars you can't afford, or endless reporting on auctions and how-to tech stories that don't interest you? Then Crankshaft is the car magazine for you. Crankshaft is a 144-page softcover quarterly filled with all sorts of fascinating stories, the type of car features you won't find anywhere else. It features American and foreign cars, pre- and post-war era cars of distinction including sports cars, muscle cars, and regular family sedans too. To discover what many car enthusiasts are saying is the best car magazine ever published, you can purchase either a single copy for $12.95 plus $3 postage, or a one-year subscription, four issues, for $59.95. To order your copy, go to www.crankshaftmagazine.com. That's www.crankshaftmagazine.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we are going in-depth and talking to former Attorney General Bill Barr. Um, He has written a very insightful book for political junkies, and if you're layman out there listening, I think it's fascinating to hear about President Trump, who's in the news today because of the January 6th committee that is more of a kangaroo committee, just throwing out all the negatives to try to prevent Donald Trump from running for office again. And I think in our last segment, Bill Barr talked about that the real value of Trump, besides the judicial uh, nominees in the Supreme Court, certainly that helped change this country for the next 20 or 30 years, versus if Hillary had been in and put more liberal uh, justices on the Supreme Court. So he is a Trump is a historical figure. But the thing that Bill Barr mentioned that I hadn't really fully considered myself was the hatred really came from the fact that he was talking about Trump was talking about and eliminating and identifying the deep state that was coming after him because it was the progressives that had been put in during the Obama administration in particular, and had been sort of feeding their way in, um, slinking into the various institutions of this country and corrupting it for the purpose of pushing a far-left progressive agenda. Yea, even Marxism ultimately would be the outcome of that. So 
Barr uh, identified that, and I hadn't fully appreciated that that's why they hate him so much, and they're afraid to get him back in office because he now knows where all the bodies lay, and he could really help clean up this country because he knows who and how they attacked him before, and now he can clean out this country of those progressive Marxist socialists that are in the institutions of the CIA, the FBI, the Department of Justice, in our Congress, in all our regulatory bodies. Trump can actually make a change in getting rid of that and returning our country to our founding fathers and equal justice under the Constitution. So given that he has this high praise and the value of Trump as a historical figure, I want to ask him next about some of the flaws, because that's what people are pointing out now. So just like just just like Richard Nixon many years ago, after he was run out of office, he said the press hated him, and he gave him the knife to stick in him. So sometimes great men are not only doing great things, but they have a blind side, a, a, a fatalistic flaw. And I want to talk more about that just to get it out on the table And I don't want to continue to beat up on Trump. There are more than enough people out there that can beat up on him. But I want to understand a little bit more from a friend, a supporter, a colleague, a attorney general who saw this firsthand, what he thinks about what Trump's flaws were and how much responsibility Trump has for his own demise and his own problems and issues with the deep state. Uh, He also had a lot of flaws, and one of them was that uh, the kind of thing that he was doing in Ukraine, when when he was told no by people that something was wrong or uh, could be uh, get too close to the line and the law and so forth, he would sometimes try to jury-rig these end runs using private actors like Rudy Giuliani and others, and he had this outside coterie of people who were dying to, you know, be conciliaries to the president, and they didn't have to take accountability or responsibility for it. And, you know, they would run these operations. And the two most visible examples of this are the Ukraine, which got him impeached, and January 6th, this whole effort to uh, reverse the results of the election, you know, setting up a war room in the Willard Hotel with Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani and, and this outside coterie of people. Okay, we talked about some of his flaws. Everybody knows that. He gets beat up by every Democrat and every media for all the things that he didn't do or that he did wrong in their opinion, but he did a lot of things right. Let's take a few minutes at least and get your perspective on some of the right things, like the border wall. Uh, He did so many other things, whether it's the economy, whether it's recognizing China as the real problem, whether it's being tough on Russia and sending troops to uh, Poland, uh, whether it's the Abraham Accords. I mean, even a layman like myself can go through a whole list of things that he did to help uh, improve the lives of regular Americans. The people at the top always do well, but he became the blue-collar uh, president, the blue-collar billionaire, if you will. But even things like the border to help protect the minority community from uh, low-wage pressures on the bottom side, bringing in people from other countries, that certainly helped the minority community that didn't even vote for him or only voted, you know, 90% against him, 
only gave him about 10% of the vote, but he did the right things in many areas like the border, don't you think? He basically got control of the border, and he had to do it against scorched earth opposition by judge, liberal judges in Congress. He got control of the border. And uh, the other thing is our military had been hollowed out. We didn't have enough ammunition to fight minor skirmishes, and he restored the military strength. There's a whole litany of things that he did. My, my resignation letter, I went through them. I said, boy, this is really good. And I thought to myself, yeah, I wish he talked about him during the campaign. The bottom line is that, uh, you know, he, 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 if you discount what he talked about and his excessive rhetoric, and then you, and then you also say that his bad ideas that he threw out there were, were not implemented. He got talked out of them. He listened, at the end of the day, he listened to reason. What he actually accomplished were, was remarkable. And, uh, so uh, I think his policies were sound. Give me a little bit of an insight and give our audience this insight as to Trump's leadership style. Most of us see him as a very strong leader, very strongly opinionated, very strong towards an action oriented. Uh, COVID seemed to be a little bit of the exception there where uh, initially after he made some tough decisions about not letting the Chinese uh, fly into this country early on before anybody realized what the major problem was. So he certainly took a strong leadership role there. But after that, it seemed like the bureaucracy and Dr. Fauci kind of took over and uh, Trump sat back. Yes, he was out there with press conferences each day trying to be a leader there. But the decisions and what to do seemed to be motivated more by the bureaucracy uh, that Trump was allowing to sort of drive the country and uh, shut us down, wear masks, where Trump I know his messaging underneath that was, I mean, even in 2019, let's get back, let's finish this thing by Easter, let's finish it by the summer, let's get back to work, let's send our kids back to school. But the ultimate decisions on what he did kind of deferred to uh, the bureaucracy. Is that true? You know, my, my view is that there are many issues on which Trump had sort of good sound judgment, issues like crime or immigration, but... Um, on some issues that were very complicated and have involved a lot of different trade-offs, he didn't really have a sense of how to handle it. He, he wouldn't make decisions. He would not lead. He would hang back and allow things to develop and then sort of snipe at people, but not stand out in front and lead. Well, on the COVID issue and the lockdowns and following the CDC or Dr. Fauci, um, how would you contrast what he did with maybe what some of the governors did in their own right? I know he was working with the governors almost weekly, that uh, Vice President Pence was coordinating all that. Uh, but how would you compare what we did at the federal level to what uh, some of the uh, state governors did? And I sort of contrast this with DeSantis on covid I'm, I'm not for anybody at this stage uh, for the presidency in 24, but I would just point out that when look at DeSantis. He actually went out and hired a public health advisor for himself, who's really who was really was sharp, impressive. very impressive guy. Then he made very tough decisions that sometimes looked like they might backfire on him, but he stuck to his guns. He made the tough calls. He stuck with them, and he turned out to be right. That's leadership, and you know Trump did essentially the opposite. There was a lot of floundering. 
People were telling him he should bring in more advisors from the private sector and get some different views. But he, he made Fauci the face of COVID. So how do you think that the COVID issue uh, changed the election? Uh, was this the real downfall of President Trump, his handling of COVID, that he didn't do what um, uh, Governor DeSantis did as an example? How, how did COVID affect the election of 2020? I think COVID affected the election in the sense that, but for COVID, he would have coasted to victory. The, his high water mark was the State of the Union in February 2020. I always thought that was his best speech. But but um, so then in in, in uh, 2020 comes along, and it, it it threw him off. But I still think he could have won. Uh, I think COVID, he, he could have shown a little bit more leadership in, in COVID, but I think ultimately uh, why he lost was uh, that he, he antagonized a critical block of Republican and independent voters in the suburbs. That was the margin of difference, and he was told that for, for a whole year. How could the outcome of the election be different? What could Trump have done uh, during that COVID period that would have changed the outcome of the election? Two things that he was warned about in 2020. Uh, one, he was told that he had to get a, a very aggressive legal team in place uh, to prepare for the elections, uh, to challenge some of the rule changes that were being made in states like Pennsylvania and Georgia. One of his aides went in and said, look, you need to put, set up a fund of $20, 30000000 million in escrow because lawyers don't trust you to pay their bills. And you need to get a top-of-flight firm in here, the way you did in your first run in 2016, to, to fight these battles all around the country. And he ignored that advice. He, he did not have a, a legal team prepared to go and fight around the country. So a lot of these uh, bending of the playing field were his own fault. The second thing he was warned about is that he had to do something about the suburbs because that was his Achilles heel and that would ultimately cost him the election. And he thought that he could make up for that gap just by getting out his base. And the way he chose to energize his base, which I think was gratuitous and unnecessary. And so what, what Trump represents is someone who's taken the Republican Party and pitted one part of it against the other as if they're mutually exclusive uh, groups, and they're not. Wow, what a fascinating insight into the Trump administration. And you were right there. You know, many of us say we wish we'd be a fly on the wall. Well, you've been a fly on the wall, and you've got the credibility to tell us what was actually happening. And it's a believable story. It matches up with uh, what we would anticipate from our perspective of knowing about Trump and what he's done and what his policies and his personality are. So your book, uh, One Damn Thing After Another, really provides some great insight. So I want to wrap this up in the next section uh, of this program so our audience can get the final flavor of all the crazy things that were going on that you were having to deal with. So let's take a quick commercial break, and we'll be back for our final segment in just a few seconds. If you love classic cars, you're going to want to listen to The Classic Car Show with Tom Cox and Richard Lentinello on America's Web Radio. Live every Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern at americaswebradio.com or on demand on your favorite podcast app. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final segment of Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. And we are talking to a very interesting historical character who has played numerous roles in different decades with different presidents of the United States, former Attorney General Bill Barr. And he's written a book called One Damn Thing After Another. And we've been talking about those damn things, crisis after crisis after crisis, in the Trump administration in particular, some of which were hoaxes, some of which were witch hunts, some of which may have been self-inflicted as well. We all know about the strengths and weaknesses of President Trump if we've been paying attention at all. But I want to talk a little bit of politics in terms of the election with Bill Barr and where we're going as a country and as a Republican Party, as conservatives. We just heard in the last segment that President Trump knew that he was losing some support among the suburbs, especially the suburban women. But he thought that he could just energize his base of middle America, the white males, uh, get some uh, inroads on the minority community, but energize his base. And if you can get those people out, then he'll win the election. Because in today's technological world, you can almost identify every household and their perspective on public issues, what drives them if they're single uh, issue voters or if the Republicans or Democrats or how they voted and what their attitudes are almost with this new technology that's available. Uh, you can really profile and just get out the people who you know are going to be supporting you. So I want to ask um, Attorney General Barr if that's what sort of happened in 2020. Is that what the president was thinking? And then tell us where we might go as a Republican Party to avoid any of the pitfalls that may have occurred in 2020. I think that's what uh, was going on. But I also think it's it has become self-defeating because of another thing that's been going on, which is the the, the radical shift of the Democratic Party to the far left, right. the lurch to, to a radical stance. That creates a huge opportunity for the Republican Party. And the right posture for the Republican Party at this stage is to build the broadest coalition, 
because, you know, this idea that, okay, we're drawing a line in the sand, it's going to be a bipolar world and, you know, there's no uh, take no prisoners kind of thing, you end up with no one being able to muster a commanding majority and it's a stalemate and it's trench warfare with all the antipathy that we have in our system today. What we need is a breakthrough, the way Ronald Reagan broke through in 1980. And the the, the ground is set for that because you, we can bring together a lot of you – know, we can bring together the, the working class, the middle class, the rural vote, the college-educated uh, uh, suburban people who have traditionally gone Republican and independent, and classical liberals who are just nauseated by the totalitarian behavior of the, of the left. And that's the kind of coalition that has to be built because that gives you – the commanding majority to make America great again. Well, that makes sense to create this broad coalition because people are being turned off by the far, far left of the Democratic Party and the way they've moved. But how in the world do the Republicans begin to embrace the idea that they now are now a new Republican Party, just like the Democrats are the new progressive far left party? The Republicans are now the party of the middle class. Trump has moved this whole uh, Republican, country club Republican concept. Well, I know that'll take a while to die off in terms of the image, but the reality is Republicans are addressing more the middle class and even the uh, lower income, the minority issues, even though they don't get the votes for that right now. And we're seeing in current elections in 2022 that Hispanics and blacks are moving more and more towards the Republican Party. So how does the Republican Party sort of absorb this change and take advantage of what you're talking about in terms of building a broad-based coalition for 2022 and 2024? Republicans have to wrap their heads around the idea that we're a working-class party now. And a, a lot of the working-class and middle-class resent the elites because they felt the elites accommodated the progressives and were willing to... Embrace their policy because they could pay their way out of the consequences. They they could you know they can make the system still work for them. The people who are getting screwed were the the middle class, and so they do want a fighter. Don't you think Trump was actually onto and exposed like the corrupt media that it was not somebody to try to pander to or try to gain their approval. Because they were never going to be for you anyway. They were just an extension of the Democratic Party. The same with the Hollywood elite or a lot of the business community that uh, I think Trump was identifying wokeness before woke was the common term that we so often use today. But don't you think that he really um, understood what was going on and he was going to be the fighter for the middle class, for the working class people? The Republicans were slow on the uptake when it, and, and, and have pandered to, to the elites, the media elites, the entertainment elites, and so forth, when in fact those, those groups are just extensions, partisan extensions of the Democratic Party. And to be accepted by them is no great accomplishment. It's no honor. And so uh, I think uh, Trump was on to that. And and I think that a Republican Party has to be on to it, you know, and and part of what's happening in our culture and our politics is a lot of business executives and others, you know, they don't want to be 
people turn up their eyebrows at the country, you know, when they see him at the country club because of some position they've taken. And so it's that social acceptance in certain elite circles that that I think part of our the Republican constituency is upset about. Well, Attorney General Barr, we've been talking about Trump and the policies and the insider activities that were going on and some of your opinions about Trump and about his policy making and the governmental organization, the Republican Party, a very broad range. And I really appreciate your bringing all that to the forefront for this audience. Um, let me change gears a little bit and ask you about yourself. You have a very impressive resume. Many would think you're part of the elite. You certainly are, are up there among the pantheon of leaders who have worked with multiple administrations, have had a great voice of common sense. Uh, your resume doesn't look like sort of the, um, you know, the middle class uh, common person out there. So give us a little bit of flavor of your background and how you view yourself and your own family upbringing and your own education. Well, I don't, it's not the way I think, think of myself and it's not the way we were raised or who, who I am. Uh, you know, I have the resume of someone in the elite class, essentially. Uh, but, you know, when I drove down to Washington the day after I got married uh, and started at the CIA and went to night school, I didn't know anyone in Washington. Zero. No connections. Uh, and um, so I carved out a career in, in, in D.C. But our family was always brought up that don't go along with the herd. Don't um, think things through. Make sure that you don't just adopt views like you're taking something off the rack in a clothing store. Think things through and make sure you understand what you say you believe. Tell us more about what was actually going on in the White House to get things done. I mean, there was an awful lot of good that was done, so it can't be all, you know, um, the next damn thing uh, kind of an approach. There had to be some really good times. There had to be some fun things that were going on because you were having some real impact on the American people. You were improving the economy. You were improving our foreign policy. You were improving our domestic policy. You were changing regulations. You were changing the Republican Party. So tell us if it was a little bit of fun or not. It was fun and, and, and actually very efficient, and you could get things done. Uh, and I give him some credit for being very available. And it was like a constant revolving cast of characters, and you could never really figure out what, when one meeting began and one, uh, you know, ended and, and another began. It was just the way it was in the Oval Office or in that little side room. And he was very available to his cabinet secretaries. He, he can he can be he can be char uh, very charming, you know, when he's getting his way, when he thinks things are going his way. Uh, he can be very charming. It's a very, you know, uh, when, when he sort of goes out of his way to stroke someone in order to cultivate a relationship, you know, he'll, he'll do that a lot. But it's very transparent what's happening. Anyone with any, you know, sense will see exactly what's going on. Well, I know you have said, you even told the president that the election was not fraudulent. It was a legitimate election. But wasn't there a lot of craziness going on? maybe even unconstitutional activity. So is it fair to say that this election in 2020 was stolen legally or was stolen because the Republicans hadn't prepared for the shenanigans that would go on 
during this COVID uh, excuse period of time? Yeah, I, I think the uh, the uh, the Democrats used COVID as an excuse to skew the playing field toward themselves. Um, there are th- one of the problems here is that people are mushing together three different cons- concepts. One is the rules you're going to go by. Uh, are you going to have mail-in ballots? Are, are you going to really enforce deadlines? Are you going to allow ballots that come in late and all that kind of stuff? And they and they, you know made those rules. They were not adequately fought by the Republicans. They got in place. Once those rules are set, you're stuck with those rules, uh, unless you've challenged them in court and won. Uh, And that can be unfair, but that's not illegal. And then the second uh, set of things are rules that are meant to protect against fraud, such as anti-harvesting rules, where someone goes around and collects ballots mm-hmm. and then drops them in the, in the ballot box, or observers from both parties in the polling station. Right. Those those are meant to protect against fraud. If those are violated, that's bad. Person who violates them should be punished, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the votes are automatically thrown out. Right. You still have to show that the votes are illegal votes. I do think that there was harvesting going on where it shouldn't have been going on. I don't think it's at the magnitude people are suggesting, and I frankly don't think it affected the outcome. Uh, but the point is, by the time, you know, once the election is held and over, it's hard to go back and cure that. The third thing is fraud. That is where. People who are dead vote, people who aren't qualified, their votes counted. You put in false votes or you take out good votes and suppress them. There was no evidence of that. And yet from the very beginning, from when he went downstairs from the residence, he started talking about fraud, major fraud underway. But they were all false. Well, we've come to the end of this week's program. I want to thank uh, William Barr for his service, for his uh, uh, helping to protect this country for serving under Donald Trump and doing the best he can to make it a successful administration through all the problems and the way it ended up, uh, which is unfortunate. But we now know a little bit more about the insight, and it's fascinating to hear. I hope our audience enjoyed it. I certainly did as a political junkie to understand sort of what was going on behind the scenes. So join us again next week on America's Web Radio look forward to talking to you more about politics, domestic, foreign policy, uh, social policy, and everything else that we can come across. See you next week. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.